the exciting book of Daniel, titling it Unshakable, and Daniel certainly was that. This morning, uh, let me ask you a question. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have been nice if God would have said, once you get saved, <clears throat> you'll never face another bad day, <laughs> ever. Smooth sailing, never, ever any stress. Well, you know what? That day is coming. It's called heaven. Uh, that's the, we call it the sweet by and by that's in the song, the old song. But until then, as some have said, we live in the nasty here and now. And there are going to be some bad days. You're going to face them. I'm just going to be completely honest with you in case you didn't know that. <laughs> you are going to face some really bad days. Somebody put together this list. You know it's going to be a bad day when your horn sticks on the freeway behind 32 Hell's Angels. <laughs> You know it's going to be a bad day when the worst player on the golf course wants to play you for money. <laughs> you know it's going to be a bad day when you call suicide prevention and they put you on hold. You know <laughs> that's bad. That's bad. It's terrible. Sorry about that. You know it's going to be a bad day when you get to work and the 60 Minutes news team is waiting in your office. Uh, or your birthday cake collapses from the weight of the candles. <laughs> Your twin sister forgets your birthday. <laughs> your four-year-old tells you that it's almost impossible to flush a grapefruit down the toilet. That is not funny. <laughs> uh, you realize you just sprayed spot remover under your arms instead of deodorant. This is, not, this is bad. You discover that your 12-year-old's idea of humor is putting crazy glue in your preparation H. It's <laughs> a bad list. I'm sorry. Uh... Uh, the, bir the bird singing outside your window is a vulture. How about that? Uh, you, ha you put both contact lenses in the same eye. You need one bathroom scale for each foot. <laughs> and then there's this. Well, there's, you call your wife and tell her that you would like to eat out tonight. And when you get home, there's a sandwich on the front porch. <laughs> Lastly, your doctor tells you that you're allergic to chocolate chip cookies. Oh, I wanted to laugh for a minute this morning, but the honest truth is that bad days are coming. They just are. And some of the days that you are going to face could be very, very devastating. Devastating. And you say, well, this is not a very fun lesson this morning, but it's true. But here's what I want to talk about here. The very fact that we know that, the very fact that we've been warned of that by God ahead of time helps us. It helps us to be better prepared spiritually and emotionally for whatever might come. You know, in, a, in car accidents, it's common for people to get whiplash. And the reason they get whiplash is because they're not expecting an impact and if you're expecting, you can kind of brace yourself and often avoid some of that. But lots of people today are walking around with spiritual whiplash, emotional whiplash. It's like they didn't expect anything wrong to happen. I, everything should be great. I'm a nice person. And everything should be fine. But it doesn't happen that way. People are depressed. They're angry because they expected something and then they get rear-ended by life. Well, let me just remind us this morning, God does not lie. He never lies. He tells the truth. 
and he tells the truth about the future. And the truth is, it's not going to be peaches and cream all the time. It's foolish to expect a life with no car accidents. But here's the promise. During the dark days, when things are at their worst, his presence is always there to comfort us. That is what he promised, and he never lies. Psalm 23, verse 4 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You know, God is our shepherd, and he guides us through the valleys. The chapter we're going to look at this morning in Daniel shows us how perfectly God can foretell the future. He can show us exactly what will happen. He, the reason he can is because he is in control of the future. The God who can foretell the future is the one who controls it. And skeptics have long tried to discount the validity of Daniel chapter 8 that we're going to look at today. The reason they don't like Daniel chapter 8 is because it's so perfect. <laughs> because they say there is no way, there is no way that this chapter could have been written before these events happened. It had to have been written after the fact and just made to look like it was prophecy. That's just too perfect. The, the reason they don't want to believe it, though, the reason they attack it is because they don't want to believe in the miraculous. And if you don't want to believe in the miraculous, then, then you'll be in the same boat. But if we'll believe that God can do anything he wants, then we'll have no problem with Daniel chapter 8. And it is true. The earlier chapters, uh, chapters 2 through 7, were written uh, in Aramaic because God really wanted to minister and talk to the Gentiles about how great and powerful this God was. These people that lived in Babylon, and they needed to know, and other Gentiles, what God can do. But in starting here in chapter 8, and through the rest of the book of Daniel, it's written in Hebrew. And that is really because now we're going to place a focus on the Jewish people, and the Jewish nation, and what's, God's going to reveal what's going to happen to them in the future. Uh, there was a scholar who wrote this, listen to this, the Israelites were to live out their faith in a Gentile world under circumstances that would make it more and more difficult to do so. They had to count on the sovereignty of God to sustain them from generation to generation, crisis to crisis. They also had to trust the power of God to control the flow of world empires as they rose and fell. God's agenda is never in jeopardy. Nevertheless, they were to be prepared for the long term. And that's what this book, this chapter is really all about, preparing them for the long term, preparing them for what's going to happen in the days ahead. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. Let's look at it. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. So he's saying, I had another vision in the first year of Belshazzar. That's what we looked at last week. In Daniel chapter 7. But now I have another one in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. And this is the third year of the reign of this king, but 12 years approximately before the fall of Babylon. Verse 2, And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass, when I, uh, when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision and was by the river of Uli. I'm not going to take the time to go through all this. You can look up the geography and all in, at your own time, but I do want to mention this. In his vision, Daniel sees himself in this place called Shushan or Susa, which would later become uh, one of the royal cities of the Persian Empire. 
the empire that would come after Babylon. An interesting note here, Esther and Nehemiah would later both come from Susa or Shushan. Verse 3, Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram, which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher came up last. All right, so here we go again with the animal dreams, okay? So he gets this dream, this vision that God gives him of this ram that has two horns. Here's a picture of one. Because of what it says later in verse 20, we already know that what this ram represents. So in, as we go through these verses, I'm just going to go ahead and start talking about what they represent. Later in the chapter, we'll see the clarification on that. What this ram pictures is the Medo-Persian Empire that was about to come. Remember, that Medo-Persian Empire, that was the next empire after Babylon. The one with the, ch- the chest of silver and the arms of silver that was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The, the bear in Daniel's previous vision. This is the empire that follows the Babylonian Empire. Now, there's a higher horn on the, the ram. One was larger than the other. And that represented Persia. Uh, and that was the one that came along after Media. Now, Media at first came up. And they were strong, but then Persia came and overtook them, and they were stronger. And so then they blended together to make the Medo-Persian Empire. Cyrus the Great was the mighty warrior and the ruler that was the one uh, helping to really conquer uh, the world at the time. And by the way, the ram is such a fitting symbol for the Medo-Persian Empire because the Persians believed that the ram was the guardian spirit for their kingdom. So this all fit Uh, very perfectly into history. Verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beasts might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. Let me give you a map of the Medo-Persian Empire here. This was an unstoppable empire. Empire that moved like a ram. West, they conquered Babylon, Syria, and Asia Minor. It moved north to Armenia, Scythia, and the Caspian Sea, it moved south to Egypt and Ethiopia. Why didn't it move east? Well, because it was east. <laughs> it was just basically moving everywhere. And at the time of the kingdom here, this, this kingdom, it was the largest that had ever been in human history. And it was really because of the military genius of Cyrus the Great. He rammed his way across the known world with ease. And nobody could stop him. But here's, as Daniel says, sees in his vision next, it didn't last forever. And they never do. Empires don't last forever. Governments don't last forever. Presidents don't last forever. America will not last forever. But it didn't last forever. Verse 5, and it was, and as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. This goat now all of a sudden shows up in Daniel's dream, and it's a symbol of Greece. It tells us in verse 21, the goat is from the west. Greece is from the west of Persia. The speed of the goat is suggested, and the the word says that it touched not the ground. It was a quick-moving goat, and it had a notable horn between the eyes. That is none other than Alexander the Great. Verse 21 tells us that that horn represented the first king of Greece, Alexander the Great. So we got a, kind of a unicorn here going on. You got a goat with a horn. And in eight years, Alexander led his army across the Middle East, conquering everything in its path. 
And then Alexander takes on the Persian Empire. He's running across and he's going to run into Persia. Now, at, this, at that time, it was under King Darius, not the Darius that was Daniel's friend. So verse 6, let's see what happens. And he came to the ram. So now the goat comes into the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. Verse 7, and I saw him close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler. That's an old English word. Rage, bitterness is what it means. He was moved with choler against him and smote the ram and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him to the ground and stamped upon him. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. So let me give you a quick picture of this idea of the, of the goat just uh, blowing into the ram. We know that from history, Alexander the Great was especially angry with Persia. He had anger and bitterness toward Persia. Possibly it could have been because that Persia had been raiding Greece uh, for many years when Greece was ruled by Alexander's father. So there was some animosity there. So just as this vision shows, Alexander attacks with intense power. Remember, everything you we're reading here and everything that Daniel is seeing is still yet to come. And we're talking about what has happened in history. Greece and Persia met in battle three times under Alexander, and finally he defeated them on October 1st, 331 B.C. It was an intense battle and a miraculous victory truly by Alexander against a much larger army. Alexander had power. He broke the two horns of the Medes and the Persians, and that's what this verse tells us, exactly what this verse tells us what happened. Verse 8, Therefore the he-goat, that is Greece, waxed very great, and, was, and he, when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. So we find this goat, uh, this Greece, moving forward, waxing very great. And Greece did move across the known world. It had a much wider path than the Medes and the Persians. And they did it very quickly. It became a great empire under Alexander. And again, God knows how to use the world's political climate for his glory. Because let me mention this. Alexander's conquest all over the world, primarily one of the main things that the Grecian people brought to the world was this unified common language and a unified culture that just spread. None of the other empires were able to spread their culture and language like the Grecian people were. And so, uh, since they were so successful in that, when it was time for Jesus to come, Jesus chose this time in history to show up a few hundred years later after Alexander the Great, and that is the time that he decided that he would write the New Testament and give us the New Testament. So everything was set for the language of the known world and a revival to spread and the gospel to begin spreading rapidly through all the known world. As, as, uh, as God's people were moving all over, speaking in Greek, And people were hearing them in their language. But due to Alexander's success, he became incredibly prideful. He became arrogant, even calling himself a god. And he would would require some of his soldiers to bow to him and worship him when he would come by. And so what happened, as we look back at that verse previous, if you go back, um, when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And that's exactly what happened. When Alexander died, he died at the age of 33 years old after a night of drinking and debauchery. And after his death, 
the kingdom divided into four, to four of his generals, as it says here. They came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. It's exactly what happened. Verse 9, And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. So out of one of the four generals comes another little horn that waxes exceeding great. Who is this little horn? What, is this, what does this represent? Again, all of this is future as Daniel is seeing it, but we now can look back in history and see and put things together who this was. We know that the person, uh, this person fits the description perfectly, and he was a Grecian ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. He came from one of the lines of the four generals uh, named Seleucus. And just as it says here, Antiochus Epiphanes ruled the south, Egypt. He ruled the east, Parthia, Persia, Armenia. And he ruled in the pleasant land. The pleasant land. That represents Israel. Epiphanes ended up playing an important role in Israel's history. And that's what the next verse rep, uh, references. Look at verse 10. And it waxed great, that is this horn, Epiphanes, he waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. The host and the stars here refer to God's people, Jewish believers. So this horn that waxed great stamps upon God's people, and that indicates his ruthless persecution that he he, uh, he gave to the Jewish people. In 169 BC, uh, let me just tell you this, Antiochus' army was held back by Egypt. He was trying to conquer Egypt. Egypt held them back, stood their ground. Well, Antiochus was uh, very angry. He was embarrassed. So he decided, I need to attack somebody. And really just out of anger, he goes into Jerusalem with 20,000 troops and most, and he kills most of the Jewish men of the city. He slaughters them in a, in a horrible, horrible way. He t- takes the women and children as slaves. He b- uh, burns the buildings to the ground. Overall, he kills about 100,000 Jews. Those who did escape, those Jews that did escape, they go and join the forces of the patriot Judas Maccabeus. So what we see now is Antiochus Epiphanes turning out to be one of the most cruel and wicked tyrants the Jewish people has ever seen. Verse 11, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, which is a a term for God. And by the daily sacrifice, by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. So he, he exalts himself and even gives himself uh, a term for God. In fact, by giving him, he gave himself the name Epiphanes. Epiphanes means illustri- illustrious manifestation. He thought he was the manifestation, the illustrious manifestation of the gods. In fact, he even had this image placed on uh, coins, the word Theo or God, uh, for himself. Antiochus's goal was to completely abolish the Jewish religion from the face of the earth. That was his one goal when it came to the people of Judah. I'm going to completely erase the Jewish uh, sentiment. I'm going to completely erase everything about them from the face of the planet. He entered the Jewish temple and to really just anger them and confuse them, he erected an altar in in the temple to Zeus, his God, 
And on that altar, he offered a pig as a sacrifice. And you know how horrible that made the Jewish people feel. It's called the abomination of desolation. He forbid them, all the Jewish people, to practice the Sabbath uh, or any other Jewish rituals or ceremonies. He forbid them to circumcise their children. In fact, if the, they would come and check the homes, and if they had any of their boys circumcised, it was a penalty of death for that family. He forced them to worship the Greek gods uh, and sacrifice to the Greek gods monthly. And he actually would send soldiers to enforce all of this. He wanted to erase God. He wanted to erase the Jewish people from the face of the planet. You think we have it bad with our freedom to worship. And why was God allowing this to happen to his own people? That's the question. You think about time of Hitler and other times. Why would God allow this? Verse 12. Here's why God was allowing it here. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground. And it practiced and prospered. Here's what this means. The Jews had transgressed. Many Jews, many at the time, had already given themselves over to the Greek gods. They had already given themselves over to the wicked Greek culture. They, heard just, they were just walking in the ways of the people around them. So what did God do? He gave them then over to what they desired, the Greek tyrant they really wanted, Antiochus Epiphanes. In other words, what I'm saying is God used Antiochus to discipline his own people, to bring them back, really. And a quick reminder, and I know it's not popular to say this, but the bad things that are happening in our life, they could be due to our disobedience. I'm not saying they are, okay? It, often they're not. But sometimes we, they could be. And we need to, with discernment, ask God, Oh God, open my eyes. Open my eyes. Give me discernment. Is there anything in my heart that's causing what I'm seeing in my life? Is there anything that I've been doing that's causing what I'm seeing in my life? And, this, and the, the, the things that I don't want in my life, what, what, is, what are the roots of these? And if so, if there is something that God might pinpoint by His Holy Spirit and touch on, there's always a simple pathway back. God does that. He gives that to us. And it's called genuine repentance. And people who repent genuinely, God always will meet them there. He's a merciful God. Notice one other thing in this verse here. It says it casts truth to the ground. One of the things that Antiochus did was take all the copies of the Word of God, the Old Testament that was uh, around at the time. The books of the law, Moses' books. And he took all of those and torn, uh, tore them to pieces and burned them up. He wanted every piece of the scriptures out of there. As we mentioned, this is a horrific time in Jewish history. Verse 13, And then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long? How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation? to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden under foot. In other words, one heavenly being, Daniel sees one heavenly being asking another heavenly being, and this, these are probably angels here, how long will this last? How long uh, will there be no sacrifice in the temple, daily sacrifice? How long will this transgression of desolation, how long will this abomination of desolation last? And they, they were saying, 
ultimately, this is a desecration of all that is holy. How long will God stand for it? The Jews had had so, so many hard times. But up to this point, let me just tell you, they've never faced anything quite like this. Because this was a new thing. This was a systematic program to completely eradicate the Jewish faith. This was new. But I want us to think for a second what it would have been like if you were living in that time under that kind of a rule and, yet, and then to get somehow a copy of the book of Daniel. You know, this is in the future again uh, from when Daniel speaking. So he writes this, Daniel chapter 8, from the vision that he saw. And you now have a copy of this. You've just read about Daniel in the lion's den. And then you begin to see the picture and you begin to see what's happening in your time. And you begin to see the signs and, and you're wondering, wow, wait a second. God is speaking to this moment. He's telling us what was going to happen right now. And then this question you're reading comes along. How long? How long is this going to last? And you, if you were reading that at this moment, you'd be desperate. How long? How long do we have to put up with this? How long? Verse 14. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, shall the, and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So the angel says, 2,300 days, or almost six and a half years. Now, when we look back in history and we compare that to what Daniel was saying, we see this, that from the removal of the high priest, uh, the casting out by Antiochus, 171 B.C., and to the rededication of the temple in 164 B.C. was 2,300 days. And that's when finally Judas Maccabeus and, and company came and were, was able to defeat the, uh, the army of Antiochus and uh, rededicate the temple. Here's what happened. When they rededicated, it was a huge celebration. And it became, it became a, a celebration that would last and even continues to this day. That day, 164 B.C., is a huge day. The word that they use to, for this celebration is Hanukkah. And the word Hanukkah means dedication. And this is something the Jewish people still celebrate. Daniel, he has these dreams about animals. He's seeing all this, but he doesn't see everything and how it's all going to play out. It, it was going to happen about 200 years later. So he was wondering, what is the meaning of this? These animals and this goat and ram and... All this. And so God sends one of his mightiest messengers to reveal to Daniel what was going on. Verse 15. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. Then, behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice. This is probably Christ now. Between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. Verse 17. So he came near where I stood. And when he came. <laughs> I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. So here's what happens when humans get a face-to-face -face meeting with the mighty angel Gabriel. If you ever encounter Gabriel, this is what's going to happen to you. This is the truth slain in the spirit, Okay. And by the way, sometimes I wish, as I was thinking about this, I wish that Gabriel would show up to one of our political leaders right before they're about to come out for a speech, you know. They're in their office getting ready for their speech. Could you imagine? Wham! They just fall on their face, scared to death, and they come out of that office shaking. What would they say at that moment? 
Well, anyway, Daniel falls on his face, and the reason he falls on his face is because the holiness and the intensity of this being that stands before him. This being is a, is a, is a being that stands before the throne of God. He comes face to face in heaven with God. To be able to be able to do that, you are a mighty creature. Mixed, then you mix that with the feeling of, it, of Daniel's just utter unworthiness to even be there and to be encountered by this, this angel. This was all too much for Daniel to take in, and he falls on his face. Then Gabriel says something to him. He says, at the time of the end shall be the vision. In other words, the interpretation that I'm about to give to you is about the time of the end. Now, real quick here, this has been a big challenge to decipher this chapter. Did the time of the end happen with Antiochus Epiphanes? Because that fits so perfectly. We see the goat and the ram, and that seems like it would fit. But now he's saying this is for the time of the end. Well, here's most conservative biblical scholars. They agree this. When you take everything into account, there is no way we can call that time, Antiochus Epiphanes, the time of the end. Jesus didn't come back. Uh, the Great Tribulation didn't happen. And you put everything together. That wasn't the end. So what's going on here? Well, this is a classic case of a common principle in biblical prophecy. This is something we have to do often. It's called dual fulfillment or near and far fulfillment. There's often a near fulfillment in prophecy and then there's a far fulfillment. There's two. It's dual. <clears throat> An example would be the prophecy of the virgin birth of Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 7, there was a near fulfillment. He, Isaiah was prophesying about this woman who would come and give birth and primarily dealing with Israel and Syria and when they would be crushed. But there was another fulfillment in that. And we know that because the New Testament tells us. But there, Because the other fulfillment, the dual fulfillment was that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and they would call his name Emmanuel. And so there was two fulfillments. And throughout the Old Testament, you see that, especially in the book of Daniel. So you have to apply that principle, the near and the far fulfillment. And when we see that, when you apply that, then everything comes into focus here. There's a near fulfillment in Antiochus Epiphanes. And there's a far fulfillment we're going to see in just a moment with the Antichrist. And I'm going to want to give that to you real quickly here. The point what we're saying is, and as you look at the atrocities that Antiochus uh, did to the, the Jewish people... All those things are a preview of what was going to come with the Antichrist. It's a preview, and Antichrist would be the whole movie. <laughs> Antiochus is the preview. In this preview, Gabriel shows Daniel and all the people the horrible things that they, they're going to expect in the future. But before he gives this to him, he has to pick Daniel off, the, off of his face. Look what it says in verse 18. <laughs> Now, as he was speaking to me, now Gabriel was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep, meaning I passed out completely <laughs> toward the ground. And he touched me and set me upright. He couldn't even get up. Gabriel had to lift him up. Come on, wake up, wake up. He had completely passed out. He was cold. Verse 19, and he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between the eyes is the first king. Now that 
being bro- now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. God, Gabriel is just clarifying the first part of the vision. We already discussed that. Verse 23. Now again, we're speaking of Antiochus now and the Antichrist as we read these next verses. Antiochus is the preview. Antichrist is the real thing in the end. Verse 23. And in the latter time of the, their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, A king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Verse 24, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. That's a lot of things, and we don't have time to investigate every single one. But I have put them here for you in a list. It's on your notes if you want to fill in those two spots. But here's what they are. And you can really compare this later if you'd like. But the quick list, nine ways Antiochus correlates with the Antichrist. They're both going to arise when sin reaches its height. They'll both be powerful, but not in their own ability. It's the work of Satan. They'll both cause widespread devastation. They'll crush military commanders. They will use deceit. They will, they will consider themselves superior, exalt themselves above all others. They will promise peace and then attack and slaughter many. They will both oppose the Lord, continually cursing and blaspheming. And then they will both be destroyed by God himself. Look at what it says. They will be broken without hand. Antiochus did not die in battle by any man's hand. He died from an illness. God took him. And the Antichrist will be destroyed by Jesus himself, the book of Revelation tells us, at the end of the Great Tribulation. Who is the Antichrist? Every generation has its opinions, don't they? Popular opinion used to be the Pope. The Pope, and it may be. Recently, I've heard more people talking about it being a Muslim that's going to arise. Maybe. So, a lot of people said Vladimir Putin. That could be. Bar- Barack Obama, Donald Trump. Some people said Jared Kushner, etc., etc., etc. Some people say it's going to be a Jew. What we do know is at least these nine things. The Revelation tells us some other things, but we know this is going to happen. We know this is going to be a part of who they are because God said it. Will the Christian be there during these days of the Antichrist? No. All those who put their trust in Jesus will have been raptured out and saved from the wrath to come. But those who are saved during the tribulation and become Christians, they will have to face many of these things. Here we go. Let's end it out. Verse 26, And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told, is true. Powerful word right there. This is coming. This is coming. God tells the truth. He never lies. It's bad news. There's bad days coming. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. In other words, Daniel, write it in a scroll, roll it up, preserve it, shut it up, preserve it. Every generation, it doesn't mean nobody reads it, it just means preserve it. Every generation needs to read this book. Every generation needs to read this vision. You need to know it. Why? Because you need to be prepared in your heart for what's coming. And it will happen in many days. But rest assured, it will happen because the vision is true. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick 
certain days. Afterward, I rose up, did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Let me just end with this. Daniel was sick he, when he got the vision, and then he was sick again when he got the interpretation right here. I mean, he could, this, is just, this was just so much for him. The holiness of God, the sight of Gabriel coming to him, the years of sin that he foresaw in the Jew, with the Jewish people, the heartache that they were going to have to face, uh, the afflictions that were going to be pushed on them. It was just more than he could take. This was bad, bad news. So, you know, when he takes all this in and he sees what's going to happen, he gets sick physically. And I just want to say this real quick. It's so different from those who claim to be prophets these days, isn't it? I'm a prophet. I see what's going to happen. These guys are flying around in their jets and, and, and you know, getting words of knowledge for everybody. Let me tell you, not Daniel. He was sick to his stomach. He didn't even want to think about it. It was horrible. And after dealing with, with how this made him feel, Daniel got up, it says, he got back to work. <laughs> Did the king's business. He had to get back to work. But in his heart, in his mind, it wasn't business as usual. Inside, well, he felt it. In fact, he was astonished at the vision and he, no one understood it. He obviously must have talked about it. He, he wrote about it. But nobody was quite getting it like he got it. I want to say this, the Christian who knows and loves the Word of God has a vision about the future. We know it because God has given it to us. We know what's coming. Everybody in here, we, we understand what's going to happen. And that, that knowledge of knowing what's to come steadies us as believers. It gives us a calm in our hearts. We do our business. We live our lives. We do our jobs. We fulfill our responsibilities day in and day out. But inside, inside... There's this far view, knowing that God's in control. And, and we know this. We know things are going to get worse before they get better. We all understand that. I hope we do. But just knowing that settles us. And all around us, people around us, they just don't get it. They don't understand why we are the way we are. There's a little, very little thought in their minds about what's to come. About what this whole life is really all about. They're just walking and going. Nobody thinks about really what's happening. And where we're headed. And every bad thing that happens to them, blah, they get emotional whiplash. And that's why we don't follow the crowd, right? That's why we, go, we don't go with the flow. They have no idea what they're doing. Read the book of Proverbs. It's, it's stupid to follow foolish people. We don't follow them as God's people. We're prepared to face anything with a long view. God has given us the script. And we keep the torch lit. As I end real quick, the Greeks had a race in their Olympic Games. It was very unique. It wasn't the person who finished the race the fastest. This was, there was one particular race that it was all about who can keep the torch lit the whole time. If you could keep the torch lit all the way to the end, you're the winner. And that's what God wants. He wants us to run this race with our torch lit, keeping burning for the Lord. Don't let anything put that thing out. Father, we thank you. We love you.